I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the wreckage left behind in the wake of the 92nd Academy Awards. Amanda, we are diving deep into the mailbag today. How are you feeling? Good. Yeah? Yeah. Are you excited to talk about life post-Oscars? Yes. As long as... Yes, I am. Okay. Such buoyancy. I appreciate that. After our chat about... uh, Mailbag questions. I'll have a conversation with the brilliant Celine Siama, who you may have seen in some of the after parties of the Big Parasite win on Sunday night. She is the writer-director behind Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a film that is without question one of the very best movies that's been released so far this year. It comes out on February 14th, wide in theaters, released by the same company that released Parasite. It also premiered at Cannes and was acquired by Neon there as well. This makes an interesting duo. Talking to Celine was um, a very meaningful experience. She is a very, very talented and smart person, so I hope you'll stick around for that. And speaking of Neon, perhaps, Amanda, we should go right to the mailbag. Bobby, would you like to read us the first question? I'd love to. Really quickly, I want to say thanks to everyone who reached out after the Oscars. Thank you, people. Questions. People are very nice. Um, okay, the first question is from Doreen. Will Neon overtake A24 as the cool indie distributor in the 2020s? What do you think about this question? Overtake is an interesting word. I, I think... It's nice to have another person at the table, and they are absolutely at the table in addition to, obviously, having um, distributed Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I saw for the second time last night, and just, like, knocked my socks off. I should have seen it earlier. It would have been on my list for last year. Like, that movie is the real deal. Uh, They also yesterday acquired Shirley, which was one of the favorite movies that I saw at Sundance. So they're in it to win it, and in fact, they did win it, and I think it's... This is a good question for you. Do you think it's a good thing to have A24 and Neon? Can they share that lane? Or is it, you know, only two men enter one leaf or two distributors enter one leaf? Yeah, I don't I don't I don't see it as that way. I don't see it as two enter and one leave. Yeah. I see it as it's it's actually fantastic that there are two companies yeah. that not only are they both sort of have the imprimatur of cool and hip, and when they when they put their name on a movie, it sort of means something to the 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 film literati. It's also that they're fighting for a certain aspect of the business that I think we care about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, seeing Portrait of a Lady on Fire on a big screen is a, is a big, meaningful experience. And Tom Quinn, who is one of the co-founders of that company of, of Neon, has been interviewed a lot in the aftermath and the run-up to the Parasite win. And um, he had some interesting things to say about what his company means in the face of the oncoming Netflix onslaught into our lives, which you and I have talked about endlessly on this show. And he, he, his, I don't want to misquote him, but he essentially said that movies like Portrait and, and Parasite and, you know, any, The Lighthouse and any of the other A24 films, they just sit on the shelf differently. They, they find audiences differently and you get to have a different kind of experience with those movies. And he talked a lot about seeing The Irishman in theaters and what a big deal that was for him mm-hmm. and how, how engaged he was. And he sounded just like us talking on this show. Yes. And... I think that when those companies like Neon, like A24, you know, Sony Pictures Classics, there's still a lot of stalwart groups that are still trying to do this. You know, you see Bleecker Street is still out there trying to do this. These sort of either standalone companies or intentionally boutique companies, I think to a lesser extent, Searchlight is also like this, which put out Jojo Rabbit and A Hidden Life. These companies really care about movies. They really care about filmmakers. They're not just bottom line companies. They want to do good business, but they are looking to let people tell stories that maybe wouldn't be able to just simply by going through the IP machine at the studios. So I don't think we have to choose between yeah. Neon and A24. I think we can have them both wonderfully. I think it's also just going to be really interesting to see how 
they develop their own identities. Uh, you know, A24 is relatively young, but Neon is really young. I believe it was founded in 2017. And so I think you and I have a sense of a type of A24 movie at this point a bit, which is not a bad thing, but it will be interesting to see that develop, how it responds to Neon, how Neon starts to develop the types of movies that um, are out in the world. It's, I mean, it's exciting. There are advocates for the types of things that we want to see. A24 is much more in the game of developing mm-hmm. the films in-house and locating the filmmakers. Not always the case. They they acquired Boys State at, at South Bot, or excuse me, at Sundance this year. Neon has mostly been in the acquisition game. You know, in addition to Parasite and Portrait, they acquired Apollo 11. They acquired Honeyland. Um, they acquired a, a lot of films um, over the last few years. And they have, they have produced and backed a few films too, but they have not yet to back a really, really noisy movie from start to finish. And I would guess that this will... That's coming soon. Yes, yeah. exactly. I think that's the next phase. What's the next question? Uh, Josh asked, as well as a lot of people, they want to know the horse race. Uh, who will win an Oscar first, Saoirse Ronan or Adam Driver? What do you think here? I think in a numbers game, this is probably Saoirse Ronan, just because there still aren't as many great roles for women, and the best actress category does tend to have a lot of repeats. I mean, Saoirse Ronan's already been nominated four times, and you can see people are paying attention to her. So I think... Best actor is filled with a lot of people who go 20 years and don't win. And I don't want that for Adam Driver. That would be a bummer. But I, you can just see in terms of historically how those categories go that I would guess Sersha gets there first. Let me ask you a question about this. I think what you said is completely right. Do you think it's a bad thing to accumulate too many nominations? Like we talked about Glenn Close a lot mm-hmm. a year ago and how. And she's a total exception to what I just said. Right. She she more closely reflects someone like Joaquin Phoenix, yes. who it took five or six nominations mm-hmm. to finally get over the line. But do you think there's a downside to just kind of always being there and people forgetting whether or not you've actually won or not? We talked about this with Renee Zellweger, too. Like, a lot of people just forgot that she won for Cold Mountain. Right. So they thought of Judy as a kind of a coronation for her. This Is it possible that people, because they've seen Saoirse Ronan almost every year since she was 16 at the Oscars, I guess so. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about trying to understand the psychology specifically of best actor and acting categories, and I think it eludes both of us at this point, especially after Renee Zellweger and Joaquin Phoenix. So uh, there does seem to be an awful lot of people just stuck in their ways and, and making one decision early and not giving a lot of extra thought. And so if they're not willing to give someone extra thought, then... Perhaps they do have that, like, too familiar. I think Sergio Ronan will probably be nominated, like, 45 times because from that same laziness of being like, oh, yeah, her, sure. But I don't know. I think it's also about taste. You know, both the thing that she and Adam Driver share, in addition to being young nominees, is that they've made vanishingly few bad films. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is a skill, and it's respected by the Academy. So we'll have to wait and see. I agree with you. I think Sersha, she's already got four, I think, to Driver's two. And she's not stopping anytime soon. What's next? Which actor and director or director that missed out on Oscar this year will be most likely to get a makeup Oscar in the next five years? I think most people will think Quentin Tarantino, um, who says he only has one film left. Who who sprung to mind when you heard this? Greta Gerwig as well. In what form do you think her makeup Oscar will come? It's a great question. I could, I almost certainly don't think it will be director. But I could see screenplay, and I could honestly see a weird thing happening where it's it's actress. Yeah, I, I, this this I had yeah, this thought. Yeah, 
Um, I wonder how, how and if she will get back on screen. Because there's a universe now where kind of regardless of all the awkwardness and difficulty around the best director and why aren't women recognized in this category conversation, she's a thing. Like a little women made a lot of money. Yeah. And she's now, a, she's a brand. Yes. And that's exciting and that's mm-hmm. fun for us because we like her stuff. But that also means that she has a lot of power that actors actually weirdly don't have. Like there's a very small now layer of actor who can get a project made. You know, it's like Ryan Reynolds and Will Smith. It's just a very small number of people. She's not in that stratosphere as an actor, but she is starting to become one as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Would that shift her attention away from pursuing on-screen opportunity? I have no evidence for this, but my takeaway was that she was shifting herself in that direction. And I think she has always identified, you know, as a writer and an aspiring filmmaker as much as an actor. So now that she actually can do it, you know, I don't know. Why would you give the power up? If you had a choice to be a writer, director, or an actor, what would you choose? Writer, director. Absolutely. Put me, like, let me be in control of everything at all times. We all know this. Amanda, you've come to be on brand this week. What's the next question? Uh, Wow, I'm sorry for putting this one on here. Do you think that in the same way Eminem got a makeup performance 17 years after winning an Oscar, Thanos will be honored at the Oscars in 2037? I am inevitable. Um, I don't have a joke. I have an honest reflection on this question. Wow. I think that there is going to be in 20 or 25 years a very sincere tribute to Marvel. And I think the anxiety and resentment that a lot of Academy members have towards these movies now, when we get to whatever popcorn movies are 25 years from now, the Marvel movies will seem like deeply sophisticated works of great art told across a long period of time. An incredibly difficult thing to have accomplished. That doesn't make the movies better. That doesn't make you like them more. Doesn't make you like the bit more. But I think as time goes by, they'll be more respected. The same way that all kind of like B-movie entertainment over time gets more respected, not less. We don't look down on um, Bud Bedecker Westerns from the 50s now. We think that they're actually, it's amazing how good they are considering the constraints. I think that they will certainly be recognized in the, at the Oscars in 10 or 15 years in some sort of self-flagellating but also aggrandizing capacity. It will be interesting, and I think they will also be remembered in 15 or 20 years. And I think your idea of we didn't we didn't understand what we had is probably true. I think it will be interesting in how they're remembered and even if they're remembered as like individual movies mm. or if there are scenes or characters, it is a it's just a different entity and they are so interconnected and kind of you know in a a, a blob of of big screen IP at this point. I'm curious what will separate out and how. I think the one thing to consider that is interesting, especially the way that they have chosen filmmakers and projects over the years is when Ryan Coogler is no longer a 32-year-old filmmaker, but when he's a 55-year-old filmmaker with a Best Picture Oscar to his name and he's entrenched in the business and he's a significant voter, mm-hmm. he'll be amb- ambassadorial in the Academy and he, he'll he be a person who has made at least two Marvel movies. So that that in and of itself is going to change the perception of it. Likewise, the perception of things like Netflix will change over time when more and more people have been given opportunity to go to the next level because of these films. They won't be as regarded quite so grumpily, I think. Um, But maybe not. Maybe not. I think Josh Brolin also should be given just a standalone prize for his work. Okay. Maybe he will. It's not over, is it? 
If, do you think that Thanos, Thanos is gone forever? In the work, in the words of Thanos, uh, the work is done. Okay. And it always will be. Okay. I think that you have not taken any lessons from anything that you've seen on screen, but okay. Well, if th- you're telling me Thanos is coming back, that's great for the bit. Okay. So either way, I win. Okay. What's next? Uh, there was a lot of Roma walked so Parasite could run questions. Mm. Um, so Bruno and Nicholas asked, did Green Books win over Roma last year influence Parasite's victory? And Nicholas asked, do you think Parasite would have still triumphed if Roma had won? This is a, these, these are good these questions. These are good questions. I think this the second one for me is easier to answer than the first. What do you think? Which is I, I don't think that Parasite would have won if Roma had won just because I think there would have been a a reaction for every action there is a equal or probably an equal and opposite reaction and i think that there are a lot of people who would have refused to sit through subtitles twice or just wouldn't have taken wouldn't have invested in the significance of parasites win in the same way and i don't know if that was the deciding force and i my instinct again with no evidence is that parasite kind of won in spite of those hurdles rather than because of them but it takes a lot of votes, and I think there are all kinds of voters. And I think Roma taking up that narrative space wouldn't have left Elaine for Parasite in the same way. I agree. This is a complex thing, and obviously we'll never really know the answer to it. But I generally agree that the the conversation that we had in the immediate aftermath of this is extraordinary foreign language films mm-hmm. don't get this kind of respect historically at the Academy. Um if we could have had it last year, it mm-hmm. would have obviated some of this extraordinary wave that we felt over the last few weeks. That being said, I think the Bong Joon-ho thing transcends a lot. Mm-hmm. And I agree. Quaron was still a Hollywood filmmaker. This is a guy who had made a Harry Potter movie. And even though it was an immensely personal story, it was distributed by Netflix. And it was, a, it was different than Parasite. Parasite was very much an underdog. And Roma, even though... A film like that, it, it would have been surprising for it to have won. I don't think it was an underdog per se. Um, I think Green Book was actually the underdog, which is right. a bit grotesque to think about. But that was the film that, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't have won and and also shouldn't have won. So it's hard to say, like, if Roma had won, it defi- Parasite definitively, definitively would not have gone forward as a winner. But I, I think the points you made are, are, are right on as well. Um, the other thing is, the Academy is just way more international. Yeah. You know, I mean, 40% of the new members that have joined since the big push in 15 and 16 are international members. So while I don't think, a, and we, we talked about this on Sunday night, I don't think a parasite kind of moment is going to happen again. And I thought Adam Naiman's piece on The Ringer was very, very incisive about this point, about how unusual and accessible Parasite is. Yes. And how difficult it would be for a movie like this to come along and sweep again. I do think you can expect more foreign language films nominated for Best Picture Mm -hmm. because of this. And I do think a consciousness about world cinema and even the way that we pay attention to Cannes. Like, what will you and I do on this podcast about Cannes this year? We're not going, but will we be significantly more attuned to the breakout films there than we were, say, this time last year? I think we probably will. This was the film festival that gave us Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite. Are those our three favorite movies from last year? They might be. So anyhow, I I do think that um, there's no way to know the answer to that question, but it is just an interesting now what on the international international cinema front. What's next? Uh, Sean, you called Parasite a, a, quote, landmark best picture. Jeremy wants to know what other best pictures would you consider landmarks? Kind of a vague word. 
Um, I apologize for my no. my inaccuracy, my ineffectiveness. Um, I thought of a couple. I don't know if you okay. how many you have identified. I think Midnight Cowboy is probably the most radical film that has ever won. It essentially kicks off the new Hollywood in a meaningful way. This is an X-rated film about um, essentially a, a, a hustler turning tricks in New York City um, and his pimp. And that's a lot different than the film that won the previous year, which was Oliver. Right. Which is a very poor adaptation of the <laughs> musical Oliver. Um, I, I, you know, I think we, we talked a week ago about every win in the 70s. Just year yes. after year feeling like a wallop and how impressive that was. And I guess it, by the time the Deer Hunter won, it probably had just been normalized. What, what jumps out is, to you as a kind of landmark win over the years? There are kind of some memorable ones. Shakespeare in Love really stands out to me as kind of when, for better and really often for worse, you become aware of the campaign and how these can be manipulated and it being um, a political event as much as it is a movie-making event, which I think was the case for like a, a very long time before. I don't mean to say that the Oscars in like 1984 were, you know, a, a pure expression of the heights of cinema, but that's really when it came to the the public view, I think, because obviously uh, Harvey Weinstein was so involved in in the Shakespeare and Love win over Saving Private Ryan. So that one is maybe a um, landmark in a more negative sense of the word. I think Crash is another landmark in think, terms of... I think we have a way to address that Crash conversation yeah. with a later question. Okay. Um, so I don't want to spoil too much of that. Okay. But I, I absolutely agree with you um, about Shakespeare in Love, that would have been probably my second pick behind Midnight Cowboy. And, you know, I think that essentially in the 90s, the Oscars, what an Oscar movie was kind of calcified. And then in the 2000s, it kind of gets turned on his head. You get a different kind of movie winning every year in the 2000s, which is part of what makes it exciting. But to go from Gladiator to A Beautiful Mind to Chicago to The Lord of the Rings to Million Dollar Baby, those movies don't have a lot to do with each other aside from the first two, both starring Russell Crowe. And I, I I liked that about the Oscars during that time. I think we're actually in an interesting place where even though it seems like Moonlight and Parasite have a lot in common and The Shape of Water and Green Book have a lot in common, the truth is, is that the last five or so Oscar winners all have a lot in common in terms of the size of the film, the auteur nature of, of its creation, the who distributed the films. They're all kind of modest. You know, it's not the same as looking at Million Dollar Baby and, and The Lord of the Rings. I mean, those are two totally right. different kinds of productions and stories and they, their politics are different and um, they're different in so many ways. So it's possible that Best Picture winners are just getting more samey and less landmarky with the obvious exception that Parasite is from South Korea and that just sets everything on its head. Yes. Um, anything else you want to point out about landmarks over the years? Wings, that was the first Best Picture winner. That's a that's a meaningful one. Okay. It's a landmark unto itself. Oh, boy. Okay. I think we can move on. Okay, next question. Uh, Scott asks, since the Oscars seem to be bouncing back and forth between inspired, fairly surprising, validating Big Picture wins, um, he lists Parasite and Moonlight, and boring, uninspired selections, he lists Green Book and Shape of Water. What's your irresponsibly early prediction for the boring, uninspired frontrunner of 2020? I made a short list. Mm-hmm. This feels unkind to these movies. I think the all of the films I'm about to list could turn out to be the five best movies of the year. Yeah. Um, but I would say that if you look at the slate of things that we know are coming, these are as close as I can get to throat clearing this movie is important Oscar stuff. Right. 
The first is Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, mm-hmm. which I don't, what, what, what else can you say other than it's going to be one of the biggest productions of the year and is adapting something that is a big time meaningful piece of Hollywood history. I am looking forward to this. So please don't, ca- you know, attach any aspersions to what I'm about to say. This really does feel like the 1917 slot at the end of the year, Oscar-y movie, big production, you know, there's war movie and there's musical, which have more overlap than you might think. It's true. Um, and it just kind of waiting there. So, and and that was a that was a front runner. I think it's going to be a front runner again. It's yeah. possible it's a complete disaster. Um, it's not like Steven Spielberg. I don't think musical when I think Steven Spielberg, but I also don't underestimate Steven Spielberg. Exactly. Um, you pointed out on our most anticipated movies of the year, our, this next choice, which is The Trial of the Chicago 7. This could go a lot of ways. It really could. And I have an open heart until it's no longer open. It's uh, a September 25th release. This is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. And this movie, I think, is going to find its way into the festival circuit. Mm -hmm. I think if you hear about it at Venice, Telluride, or Toronto, do not be surprised. And the way that it is received will probably indicate what kind of chances it has in this kind of a race. But it's a real-life story about a big, meaningful political social change in this country. And those things tend to work well. And it's got a big, noisy cast full of overactors, all of whom will be no doubt great, um, chewing on Aaron's dialogue aggressively. So we can expect to see that. Can I just do a quick side note? Yes. One of the true red carpet highlights from the Oscars on Sunday night was uh, Billie Eilish was being interviewed with her brother and collaborator, Phineas. And they were asked about their favorite movies. And Billie Eilish gives her stock answers now, which is like, we need to talk about Kevin and the Babadook. Shout out Billie Eilish. Keep shining. <laughs> and then Phineas shares his answers, which are the social network and Moneyball, really anything by Aaron Sorkin. Shout out my man, Phineas. So in case you want to know how Billie Eilish became so extraordinarily successful, all you need to do is listen to their inspirations as films, which are incredibly weird, fraught, emotional, quiet, dangerous movies mixed aggressively with high art analytics, because that's what Billie Eilish is, truly. Um, Another film that I'm very interested about, and I heard a little bit about last week when I interviewed um, an actor and writer and director named uh, Michael Covino, who made a movie called The Climb with his partner Kyle Marvin. He's one of the stars of this movie called News of the World, which is a Tom Hanks movie directed by Paul Greengrass. The last time they got together, they made Captain Phillips. This is a period piece set during wartime. It's coming out on Christmas. Draw your own conclusions. Yes. Um, Not unlike the 1917 West Side Story comparison you're making. This one has even maybe arguably more of a one-to-one comparison point there. We don't know anything else about the movie other than it's based on a novel that I haven't read. Have you read this novel? I haven't. So this feels at least in the sort of like is it an uninspired frontrunner? Probably not uninspired. I mean, I'm stoked for another Paul Greengrass movie. I, I really like his movies, and we're on the record about Hanks. We are. Hanks rules. Yeah. So hopefully that will be something that we see. You mentioned on Sunday night, The French Dispatch. We got to look at some posters yep. and some stills today. Cue the New Yorker. Uh, this Really is, making the most of their connection. Good for them. Yes. Well, this appears to be a film based on The New Yorker. Yeah. So uh, I can't say that that has me, um, has the hair on the back of my neck standing up. <laughs> But I, I also trust Wes Anderson, and I'm, I'm so excited just to talk about and revisit his work and, and consider him. This is a movie that's coming out soon, and um, July movies, as we just say, saw. By soon, you mean July. If, assuming we're still alive in July. Right. Um, you know, that didn't serve Once Upon a Time in Hollywood well, so I don't know what that means for this movie as well. Um, I wrote down PTA movie. You did. 
Um, you wrote it in all caps. What? I think it's just rude for that to be in the boring, uninspired frontrunner category. Well, it collides a little bit with the it's time thing. And at, at some point, the Academy will decide it's time on PTA. And I thought that the surprising and big support for Phantom Thread, despite its absolute oddity, it was a good sign mm-hmm. that we're rowing in the direction of the PTA year. And when there was the PTA year, if you thought I was yelling on Sunday night, wait until that Oscars. Yeah, no, I know. I will be lighting myself on fire. Okay. Running nude through the streets. Unsubscribe. Okay. Is that going to be eligible? Is uh, it supposed I, to come out in 2021? Unclear. Okay. It, I, it sounds like um, production is starting shortly. The casting has been happening. I don't know how quickly he's going to turn the movie around. This is apparently a high school movie, a coming of age movie. That's pretty much all we know about it. Um, I don't know when it'll come, but I'm, I'm putting it on the list because I'd like to will it into existence. I thought you were breaking news there for a second. No, I don't know anything. Nobody tells me anything. Um, I'm sure Paul Thomas Anderson finds me absolutely embarrassing, but what can I do about it, you know? Love is love. Okay. Uh, I also put down Mank, which I mentioned on Sunday. Did I forget anything else? I think those are the major ones. Again, the the question was boring, uninspired frontrunner. So that's rude. Uh, I guess we forgot Dune. Yeah. I, Which is rude to say for Denis Villeneuve, who... I think as a tremendous filmmaker, I, you know, I, I'm working through my attitude towards this upcoming thing. I guess I have most of the year to do it. Big sci-fi rarely does well. Um, I guess Avatar is probably the only real example of big time science fiction getting acknowledged. And James, I would say Denis Villeneuve is not quite at the James Cameron level yet, mm-hmm. but it's possible that he gets there. You know, I saw a movie at um at Sundance called The Father, which was. Right. Written and directed by the playwright Florian Zeller at Sony Pictures Classics, putting out starring Anthony Hopkins. It's about a um, a father um, coping with dementia, and it's told in a very creative fashion. And it feels very stagey. It's very much a play converted to a film. But that is probably specifically more along the lines of what the question is asking, which is like, what's an uninspired, like very obvious showcase for an actor telling a story about a sensitive issue? If Anthony Hopkins isn't nominated, I'll be shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very, very good in the film. The film is okay. It's pretty good. Um, I'm sure we'll talk more about it soon. And if you have a parent who is experiencing something like this or a grandparent, I think you will immediately identify with it and it will be meaningful to a wide swath of people. That's closer than News of the World, which just sounds like a good movie that I want to see. Right. Um, and I'm sure that more films that seem a little bit more green booky will come along soon and, and we'll talk about them when they come. What's next? Drew asks, which Tarantino movie do you think he was deserving of best director the most, taking into account the field for those years as well? Well, what do you think about this one? Did you have, because he's been nominated three times, Mm -hmm. 94, 09, and 2019, um, which means there are six other movies that he's not been nominated for. Um, Should we talk through what the nominees were? Yeah, I think that would be useful. I have a pretty clear answer, but would help to have the information. So in 1994, he was nominated alongside Robert Zemeckis for Forrest Gump, Woody Allen for Bullets Over Broadway, Robert Redford for Quiz Show, and Christoph Kieslowski for Red. Pretty hallowed collection of nominees there. Yes. That year. Um, he had no chance of winning because Forrest Gump was considered such a extravagant a triumph. triumph. Yeah. Um, and he did win Best Original Screenplay with Roger Avery that year. You know, Pulp continues to be my favorite and like the pinnacle in a lot of ways um, alongside the other film that he was nominated for in Glorious Bastards. So it's possible it could have been 94. I think it's not. It's who we 
think when he we think he should have won. And given these nominees, I mean, my answer is is for Pulp Fiction. For 94. Yeah. Um, in 2009, he was nominated for Inglorious Bastards alongside Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker, James Cameron for Avatar, Lee Daniels for Precious, and Jason Reitman for Up in the Air. Um, I'm not going to complain about Catherine Bigelow's win. I, I think that that was deserving. I think James Cameron also would have been deserving. I was going to say, Inglorious Bastards is my favorite Tarantino, and I still think that either Catherine Bigelow or James Cameron, it, it's hard to argue against either of those. I agree. That's tough. I mean... Inglorious is probably my number two movie. I think it was my number two when we did our list. Maybe it was my number three behind Jackie Brown um, over the summer. You know, that's not a bad third place when you're running up against the Mm -hmm. Locker and Avatar, which invented a new way of making movies. Yes. Um, You know, 2019, what are you going to do? Like, sometimes you just, sometimes you just get screwed. Like, you got, you ran into Catherine Bigelow one year and you ran into Bong Joon-ho one year. What are you going to do? I thought that the slate of, 2004 nominees were interesting. I rewatched Kill Bill Volume 1 last week when I was ill. You know when you get sick and you're like, I just need, I need a, a, a blanket. A comfort, yeah. yeah. I need I need a big bowl of soup. I do, but I watch romantic comedies and you watch Kill Bill. I watched Kill Bill and let me tell you something about Kill Bill Volume 1. Yeah. 100 out of 100. Yeah. Absolutely kick-ass movie that is uh, inspiring to me. That, that year, the nominees for Best Director were Peter Jackson for The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Fernando Morales for City of God, your girl, Sofia Coppola, Lost in Translation, Peter Weir, Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, and Clint Eastwood for Mystic River. Also a good collection of nominees. Mm-hmm. You can't really make the case to me that Fernando Morales or Peter Weir should have been here over Quentin. Like, I just don't. It's just... I buy it, that. You, it, I just can't get on board with it. And and Jackson and Tarantino would have been an interesting showdown because it was both of them kind of at the height of their thing. Right. It's like the most fantasy Peter Jackson movie and the most Quentin Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that it would be useful to at least cite that one. But I think you're right. I think 94 is, he just should have won then. And they we couldn't have known that he was going to get screwed in 09 and screwed in 2019. Not screwed, but just kind of like run into an unfortunate circumstance. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, what does that mean for, let's go, well, let's go to the next question. Caleb. What are the odds of Quentin's 10th and final movie hitting big at the Oscars now that Once Upon a Time didn't win? What are the odds? I I, I, I hope so. He's described the 10th movie as an epilogue. So does that mean it will be more genteel? Does it mean it will be crazier? Um, will it be consonant or connected to his previous stories, the way that there's a lot of interconnectivity in his movies? I don't know what to expect. Um, I know he's competitive. I think the Oscars do like the swan song. They do like being a part of that that narrative. And I think even the Oscars would know that to not reward Tarantino would be be a mistake, would be something that reflects poorly on them. But, I mean, it really does depend on the quality of the thing. If it's a, you know, more open, accessible version of Tarantino with that slightly softer Once Upon a Time side, I think he has a great chance if it's, like, guns blazing, literally and figuratively then we'll see. Yeah, I mean, there's no guarantee. I mean, if you look at 1980, the Academy looked at Raging Bull and Scorsese and they said, you know what? I don't think so. And then 10 years later, they looked at Goodfellas and Martin Scorsese and they said, I don't think so. And then 10 years later, they looked at Gangs of New York and Martin Scorsese and they said, I don't think so. And that's a lot. I mean, that's, and, and Tarantino is, even though they're different filmmakers, is in a lineage of a kind of abrasiveness and 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 masculinity in his filmmaking that the Academy is not really usually on board with. So just because he decided on 10 doesn't mean the Academy will decide now is the time. 
which of course is just a complete crock of shit to me in general. Like I think it's absurd that he doesn't have a best director Oscar, but it, there's no guarantee that even if he tells the most beautiful, perfect QT movie ever, that they're going to respect that because we don't know what we're dealing with. And also, as we just said, he could just hit a bad year. That's right. You can get unlucky. I think like the Oscars are irresponsible or make mistakes all the time, but you can just wind up wind up in a year with Parasite. Yes. And we all like a wave, you know? Quentin Tarantino is now part of the old guard. He's not new and exciting. Mm-hmm. Bong was new and exciting for people this year. It was more fun to do that. So we'll see. What's next? Alex asks, if Leo hadn't won for The Revenant a few years ago and was still Oscarless, how would the best actor race have played out this year? What do you think about this? I think this is interesting, but also wishful thinking. It obviously would have been different for everything we just said about the Oscars liking to write wrongs way too late. But again, the acting categories are so weirdly solidified now. And actors loved Joker. And I just... There's still seen, there was still such a uniformity to, to how Joaquin Phoenix's performance was received that I think it's he still would have had a hard time. Do you think in. Leo competing would have affected Brad's ability to win? That's a good question. But they've done actor and supporting actor before. To the same film. To the same film. Yeah. Well, so, I just wonder if like if everybody felt comfortable with Brad, not just because he was Brad, but because it was a way to acknowledge the film. And it was a way to reward that movie. But if people thought seriously about rewarding Leo, and it doesn't, it, you know, I talked about this on the rewatchables. We talked about it since we've been talking about that movie. I just think it's it's Leo at his best. I thought it was the most um, lived in and funny and strange performance he's really yeah. ever given. I I agree with you. I, that's an interesting question. Do you think that people are rewarding films with the acting wins? To me, it seems really separate, you know. And I and I know that Brad Pitt won for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I know that Laura Dern won for A Marriage Story, two movies we loved that were otherwise kind of overlooked at the Oscars, but. I don't get the sense that the voting bodies are thinking of it that way. I think they're voting for Brad Pitt and Laura Dern. You might be right. I think there's, you know, it's a it's a counterfactual we'll never know the answer to. Um, I I think Leo is the kind of actor who has the kind of track record that should be in a conversation for two Oscars. If Nicholson was and Streep was and now people like Renee Zellweger and Daniel Day-Lewis. And, you know, there's, that's a very exclusive club of actors he strikes me as worthy of that conversation. And, you know, I don't expect him, the next movie he's making sure sounds like an Oscar movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, the David Grant adaptation with Martin Scorsese, which it sounds like will go into production this spring. I mean, period piece about an an injustice Mm -hmm. that has a kind of like thriller feel to it. Feels very Oscar-y to me. Maybe we'll see him again soon. What's next? Uh, Tim suggests that we should do our own preferential ballot at The Ringer. He wants to set The Ringer ablaze. And we should release the votes. What do you guys think about that? How meaning every single person on staff would vote, and we would unveil the preferential ballot for each, like the combined preferential ballot scores. I guess he says uh, we could do this. Have the whole ringer staff rank the noms and show the whole process. If the leader has less than fifty percent, chop last place, reallocate, et cetera, et cetera. This is not what Amanda wants. Well, I, you what know, do you think would win? Tim, I appreciate your enthusiasm for The Ringer, but as someone who has actually seen the the results of The Ringer voting for things, uh, I have to let you know that it might not be what you want. May I present to you Chick-fil-A waffle fries? I was going to say, waffle fries and BoJack Horseman are suddenly winning the Oscars. And you're just like, okay. Ford versus Ferrari like the Chick-fil-A waffle fries? It could have been. It could have been. Among your cohort, Bobby, 
of of young car bros, you could have you could have literally roomed your way right to the top of the heap. I would have been really pushing for it in the office, you know, like pulling people aside. Yeah, I, I think we could do this next year. I mean, I, I don't think it would really mean anything about how the Oscars are going to turn out. Right. Um, and I think it would be funny to watch people try to campaign. That's kind of a good bit. <laughs> and, and, you know, we famously did um, campaign ads here a few years ago for NBA players, for MVP. I would love to see our political ads yes. for certain films. Maybe we'll put a pin in that and try to do that next year to make this a little bit more fun. What's next? Mando asks, should we boycott biopics to end the best actor and ask actress domination? Mando! Thank you, Mando. Um, I did a little research here. Last 10 years, seven of the 10 best actor winners played real people. Three of the 10 best actress winners played real people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a little bit about history and we don't need to go down that road, but it's a good point. I still think Roger Sherman's hottest take, which is that we should just do the best impersonation of a person, is is the best way to solve this. I agree. I don't want to boycott biopics. I really enjoy them. And this, again, just isolates another thing of how we're talking about the acting categories and evaluating acting is either totally broken or non-existent. Like, are we evaluating acting anymore? What, not we, but the people voting on the awards is a, is a great question. You said this, I, I think, on Sunday, and I think it's a good opportunity for a future episode. I think you and I trying to figure out and maybe even have a guest on who can help us understand what actually is a good performance and what goes into a performance would be beneficial. Because a lot of acting and a lot of movie experience is purely emotional. Did I connect? Did I feel it? But acting is a craft. And I don't want to hear somebody talk about specifically how they act, but how people identify what a good performance is would be an interesting conversation. So let's do that down the road. Sounds good. Well, the follow-up to that, the next question, you guys kind of answered a little bit from Noah. Have we reached the point where best actor and actress are defined by roles more than performances? Depends. Yeah, I mean, I think we don't know the answer to this question. I would argue that they're defined as much by the personalities than they are I agree. By, the, by roles or performances. Also, you know, is there a distinction between the role and the performance ultimately is a question that we could possibly discuss on the the podcast, on, on the future episode. I I thought a lot when I saw this question of Francis McDormand and Three Billboards, mm -hmm. another two-time winner, where I think a lot of people just thought her character in Three Billboards was Francis McDormand. If you watched her give speeches with that kind of, you know, sharp-elbowed, funny, brassy, fearless style that she has, I think people were like, I just like her. I just like what she's about. She just seems like she's tough and doesn't take any shit. And I, I respect that and I want to get behind that. And I'm sure that she has some things in common with that character, but she's not the, they're not the same person. Right. And that kind of conflation, I think, tends to happen in the same way that a lot of people, after I uh, perhaps erroneously, angrily lobbied against the, the Renee Zellweger win, a lot of people were just like, people just love Judy Garland and they just wanted to give Judy Garland something. And this is as close as they're ever going to get because she's not alive anymore. And it could be as simple as that. It could just be like, I want to reward a, a, a dead person. Yeah. And this is how I'm going to do it. Um, who knows? These are diffuse bodies. What's next? Breeze wants to know, Netflix had an all-time high number of nominations and still barely won anything. Is it just a matter of timing or are they doing something wrong as a studio? And if so, what do they need to correct? This is a tough one. They're in a tricky spot. It might take a little bit of time for people to get more comfortable. I think similar to the Tarantino conversation we're having, I think a couple of films just got unlucky this year. Mm -hmm. um, they obviously released some of the very best movies of the year, and there's no value judgment placed into this. 
I just think that there are people that still resent it and they just don't want to reward it. And they want to reward Neon for putting Parasite in 1,500 theaters. They think that there's something noble about that. Um, and they don't want to reward everybody stays home and watches 2.6 hours of The Irishman and then goes to bed. And part of it is just whatever projects they have this year and what other, what other films are a big deal. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think they need to change anything? Yeah, I I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I loved both of those movies. Um, and I think they definitely ran an aggressive campaign. They spent a lot of money. I do wonder whether there was a response, not just to like the Netflix of it all, but the type of campaign, which does feel um, from a, a different era, as opposed to Bong Joon-ho just you know, rolling around being delightful. And it's a different type of experience that people are have as they're deciding who to vote for. Yeah, I think some people probably saw Netflix executing a campaign. Yes. As opposed to Bong Joon-ho having fun. And if you can see that, maybe you don't like that. Maybe you don't like feeling pitched to. Maybe you just want to love something purely. I think that that is also circumstantial and it depends on whatever you're going up against. I'll never forget um, even just talking to some friends uh, that work in Netflix after seeing Parasite at Telluride and all of those people being like, wow, that movie is really good. Yeah. And and there's almost like nothing you can do about it. It's just like that movie is really good and it comes along once in every 10 or 20 years. And when it doesn't matter how long you spent planning your marriage story strategy. Parasite is Parasite. And sometimes you run in fourth place and it's nothing against you. You just run in fourth place. I think that's really true. I do also just think, again, and it has nothing to do with Netflix or the campaigns, but how people respond to the movies. And I guess this has to do with the experience of watching Netflix in your home. But there were a lot of people who watched The Irishman in situations that we don't normally associate with Oscar movies. And I think that affects how you receive The Irishman. And I assume that that affects how you compute your vote. And that that's the trickier part. I don't know how you get past that long term. And at the risk of sounding like a corporate shill, I just really appreciate that they give a lot of great filmmakers money to make movies. Yeah. And at some point, we're, there, there'll be a narrative that'll calcify that'll say like, it's time now. It's, me, it's time to do it. Time to do it for Netflix. And to that point, let me also say this, like thrilled the Parasite won. And I hope at this point that most people listening to this podcast have been able to see Parasite, but it was very hard for a lot of people who want to participate this in this to see Parasite for a very long time. You're right. And everyone was able to see The Irishman and everyone was able to see Marriage Story. And we all got to talk about that and have like weird emotional journeys about Marriage Story. And that really, that has value. And that's honestly like bigger than the Oscars. But I think it's possibly a bummer if you don't get to win Oscars. I got to, a chance to see um, Miss Americana on Netflix and I hated it. Okay. I hated it fully. That's that's great for you. I, I I love doing this podcast with Amanda, and I respect her opinion, but I think Miss Americana is a pox on our society, okay. and I think it should be deleted from Netflix immediately. Do you think if you keep going that I'll take this bait? Um, I, I, I respect you no matter what. Okay, great. Bobby, what's the next question? <laughs> well, this is a question from me. Do you think they overpitched Roma? Because there was a lot of talk among people in the industry being like, I just received a 100-page shot-by-shot, frame-by-frame version of all of the shots in Roma. I got that for Marriage Story and and The Irishman as well, and they were very beautiful. So I think that they they are definitely going big. I I think that a lot of people would not have taken Roma seriously if they hadn't done that. And I, I think that a lot of people saw Roma, which was a tremendous cinematic achievement. I you know, I I feel kind of bad that Roma has 
fallen to, a little bit to the wayside because we got what we wanted with Parasite and it's our beautiful shining child. And I think... I would take Parasite of Aroma 100 times out of 100 I was about for the to, record. I was about to say the same thing, but also like maybe we actually don't have to choose. Yeah, and no, then, we, don't. we and, don't. And I think the fact that so many people saw Roma and argued about it and that it was on a contender at the Oscars is still an achievement. And some of that was a function of what you're saying, which is sometimes you need to overdo it to get attention. Yeah. And Netflix went from 15 nominations last year to 24 nominations this year, and they had more films that were in contention and a stronger presence. Um, maybe they'll have 30 this mm-hmm. year. I don't I don't know. I don't. They don't have an Irishman coming, to the best of my knowledge. They don't have a movie that's just like, look out, because Marty is making a gangster movie again. So without that, it's a little hard to say. That's 10 nominations right there. But we'll see. They're not to be underestimated by any stretch at this point. They are the biggest producer of original movies in America right now. What's next? Uh, Panko wants to know, which three actors today would you pick to portray young Sheeran Hoffa and Buffalino in The Irishman, assuming no de-aging technology is used? I wrote down three names. They're not as flashy. One of them already appeared in The Irishman. Mm-hmm. His name is Bobby Cannavale, who strikes me as an adequate young De Niro. Okay. Max Cassell who you may recall from The Sopranos and I believe Doogie Howser, MD. Right. Who, who I think is a strong Pesci stand-in, has that kind of unctuous energy that Pesci has. And an actor named John Magaro, who people will be able to see in First Cow, Kelly Reichert's new movie, um, who also appeared in David Chase's film right after The Sopranos, Not Fade Away, which is one of my favorite movies of the decade, which nobody talks about, which nobody cares about, which a lot of people don't like. Mm-hmm. But I think he has got a real knack, and I think he would have been a very amusing um, young Jimmy Hoffa, even though we don't really see young Jimmy Hoffa in the movie very much. We need it more for for Russell and, and for Sheeran. Yeah, well, I guess that's my question to you is, do you actually need it? Do you think this is this is a good idea? I like I like what they did. Even if the de-aging is a little distracting, I liked what they did. Yeah, I, I just think you need the continuity throughout the three hours, or else there's no reason for it to be that long. It's your experience with these characters and specifically these old men over time. I agree with you. Um, what's next? Uh, Mike wants to know, is is the sound editing versus mixing, mixing split award an attempt to honor two great works or just a fluke because of confusing distinction between these two categories? I don't know the answer to this. Do you think people who are voting on it know the answer to that? Well, some do and some don't. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of craftspeople and below the line people see the key distinctions. And there are distinctions. There are definitional distinctions between the two of the things. However, if you just made best sound, you'd be able to incorporate all of those people. And so you'd be able to combine the people who worked on both sides of this craft into one category, the same way that you do. You know, you heard Roger Deakins talk about his focus puller and his gaffer and how helpful those people are and how essential they are to his process and his work. But those people are not nominated for best cinematography, even though they contribute to the cinematography. I think finding a way to adequately pull in that entire aspect of filmmaking Mm -hmm. in sound is logical and makes a lot of sense and would streamline the process. Um, And it would probably eliminate voters being confused. Yes. And then weird things like Ford v. Ferrari winning in one category in 1917 winning in in Mm -hmm. another category and just put the two together. But we'll see. What's next? Uh, Andrew wants to know why why there's an arbitrary limit of one entrant per country in Best International Feature. I don't know. I mean, obviously, it was very bad for a portrait of a lady on fire. Yes. I, I mean, we didn't write these rules. And I think if I could just channel Wesley Morris for a second in terms of the the rules being arcane and super confusing and, and 
not really getting them. I, I don't know. I, I honestly kind of don't even want to try to guess their intentions. I assume it's to try to get more countries represented. I think I think you're right. I think that's what it is. Unfortunately, the filmmaking apparatus in France is more organized and and they just produce more features mm-hmm. than other countries. And that's not should not come at the expense of Senegal or um, Turkey. But if there's two great French films, it's just stupid that we can't honor one of them. That just doesn't, that's just not good for movies. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point it just becomes a question about uh, this philosophical nature of this category. And I think the language requirements are also tied into this where the film has to be primarily not in English in order to qualify for international feature. But that does exclude many countries where English is the national language. And there was a snafu about that during the nominating process this year. So I think it is trying to spread the wealth. It does also seem like perhaps the rules are increasingly outdated as we as we have more access to, to more movies from around the world. I completely agree. Um, let's try to go a little lightning round. What do, let's do the last few, Bobby. Brad wants to know what's next for Todd Phillips. Weird career. Um, keep getting them checks, Todd. You did it, man. Pride of Long Island. You just you are the most successful writer of original films, I think, in the world between the Hangover movies and Joker. I don't, you know, the, his his participation on Hangover is legendary. I can only imagine what kind of participation he had on the Joker. I hope he has a cool house. I don't, you know, he'll make another movie. He'll make whatever movie he wants now. Which is, um, look, I like Todd Phillips's movies. I know that's not a popular opinion. I I know that that's uh, in some corners cancelable. Um, I think he's actually now, we're officially in the, like, this person's underrated uh, phase because people seem um, politically distraught with with his work. But as a craftsperson, as a person with vision, and you saw what Hilder Guanajatir said during her acceptance speech, she really respects him as an artist. And I think over time, if he keeps leaning into this kind of a movie, um, we may slightly change the way we see him as a filmmaker. But maybe he'll just make another uh, frat comedy as well. No insights, Amanda? Good luck to him. <laughs> okay. Next question. Uh, if you were to win an Oscar, how would you approach your speech? That's from Greg. Mm, straight endgame quotes. It nearly killed me. But the work is done. It always will be. Okay, good. I like the speeches that start with an anecdote. Uh, you know, there's like one tight, focused hopefully with a little bit of humor, not like totally self-serious anecdote. And then it leads into the, I'm so grateful, blah, 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 blah. And also no agents. Respect to agents. Good job at being agents. And you're getting a shitload of money. And keep, keep, keep going with that. And no more for you at the Oscars. There we go. I, I will, I will, I will thank Eileen, my wife. That's nice. That's my only rule. Okay. She's the only person that ultimately deserves thanks in this world to me. So, um, and, and Bill Simmons, God bless him. Okay, um, that's good. Uh, next question. Uh, Nick is representing the Christopher Nolan Hive. He wants to know if Tenet is going to win Christopher Nolan an Oscar. We'll I find s- out. Yeah, I say, I say it won't, but I commit, I solemnly commit on this podcast to reset my feelings on Nolan and to look at all the movies again and evacuate my my nastiness about it and try to try to see it as purely as I can because I like you know three or four movies a lot and I really don't like three or four movies a lot and I thought that talking with Tarantino about Dunkirk was was big and I saw that movie in a new way 
And I think you really like his movies as well. So it's it's kind of a good topic for us this summer. Yeah, I'm excited. I do like his movies. I think that he is one of the few original minds. You know, it's a classic thing where you have to separate the movies from the the fan base, which is just increasingly the case for all sorts of things. But I I, I do like his work. I'm curious to see whether the Academy will take it seriously. Yeah, crime thrillers don't usually do well, and neither does science fiction. So TBD. What's next? Two more. Kyle wants to know, will Shia LaBeouf ever be nominated for an Oscar? How can he do more in a movie year than he did for doing Honey Boy and Peanut Butter Falcon in the same year? I view this as the first step in the long road to acceptance. What he did and even just appearing on the telecast, which people loved. And there's so much there's so much warmth and good feeling for Peanut Butter Falcon. And a lot of people saw it. And Honey Boy, now that it's available on Amazon Prime, I think a lot of people are going to see. And... His performance in both of those movies is undeniable. I, I I mentioned on Sunday night, I think it's crazy that he wasn't nominated for Honey Boy. I thought that was so, I thought he was so good in that film. Um, but he still has his baggage. He does. To your point, I think showing up at the Oscars and being a part of that moment indicates that he is willing to, to do some of the work needed for Oscar acceptance, which I, I don't. That's those are the Oscars terms and not mine. You're right, but uh, that it does require a certain amount of playing the game, and Shia has not always wanted to do that, and it seems like he might be willing to, and I, that might go a long way. He had said that Zach Gottsagen, who he appeared on stage with, who was mm-hmm. his co-star in Peanut Butter Falcon, like changed his life, and that they're actually very close friends, and it seems to have had a meaningful effect on him. Um, since he was like 16, everybody knew he was one of the best actors to come along in a long time. He had like that James Dean energy where people were just like, whoa, this guy just got it. He just, I just, you just want to watch him. So it was cool to get, watch him get a chance to come back into our lives. I hope he's, I hope he's well. And it's just better for us if he's in big, important movies that get a lot of attention. Last question. Andrew wants you guys to start discussing another pod, a la the Sense and Sensibility Spider-Verse conversation. Which two choices would you give? I guess this is a little bit of a on the spot thing, but. People liked it. And um, we discussed this yeah, on Sunday night. Yeah, we talked a bit about it. I think Sean's going to pick an action movie for me. And I will probably pick a romantic comedy of some sort. Do you think we should let people suggest what we do? I'm open to suggestions, sure. I'd, maybe we wouldn't guarantee it because I, I do think part of what made that podcast work was that they were two movies that we both actually had personal connections to. So I would love, we would love to hear what you guys want to say. Just, um, you know, no promises. Yeah, and I think, you know, on that episode, you were even more generous to me than I was to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm hopeful to be more generous to you on the next go-around and more open-minded as we uh, figure it out. But th- that episode was just an absolute blast and um, is also completely unpegged. And mm-hmm. it's nice to do something just because we want to do it. Uh, so if you guys want to make suggestions to us, cool. No guarantees that we'll take it. If anybody can find another movie as ill as Spider-Verse. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. Um, this is going to conclude our mailbag. Bobby, thanks for for helping out with this. Um, you know, we have a lot of stuff to cover in the movie world in the next few months. Um, our boss, Bill Simmons, made a request to me yesterday morning. He said, I need you to do a Dumpuary episode. Mm-hmm. I need you to look at all of the bad movies that have been released this year. Yeah. I'm not going to say what movies are bad and what movies are good, but let's just say we both saw Birds of Prey. <laughs> um, we'll be seeing Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, yeah. I'll be seeing Fantasy Island. Yeah, I won't be seeing that one. Um, there's been a, there's been a Underwater. That was a movie that was released oh, right. earlier this year. Um, there have been some bad films. So we'll mm-hmm. talk about the bad movies next week. 
And sometimes there's fun stuff in bad movies to explore. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be more good movies. And hopefully we'll be here every week for you to help you understand what the, what good movies are there. Are you ready for that, Amanda? I am, especially for the good ones. But, yeah. you know, we'll also see the bad ones. Yes. So TBD on Sonic the Hedgehog could be good, could be bad. It could be something. How do you feel about Dr. Robotnik, a.k.a. Jim Carrey? Is that a character in Sonic? Yes. Did you play Sonic? I certainly did. I wasn't allowed to. Well, I wasn't allowed to play video games. Well, that's so, a key topic of conversation I know, for but us I, then. But I'm familiar. I, I knew like the allure, but it was like on a different gaming system, right? It was on Sega Genesis. Yeah, and most yeah. people didn't have Sega because I would have to go to friends' homes to play video games, but that wasn't available to me. So I'll be sort of an anthropologist on this upcoming podcast. I can't wait. I look forward to it. In the meantime, uh, please stick around for my conversation with Portrait of a Lady on Fire writer, director Celine Siama. I'm honored to be joined by Celine Siama. Celine, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Celine, you know, I noticed this is your first feature-length film that is not about adolescence, that is not centered around adolescence. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why it took this period of time to get to a film about this stage of womanhood. Yeah, I wonder too. <laughs> <laughs> Was it, is that something that you had been plotting when you started your work, I don't know, over 10 years ago as a filmmaker? Did you think, I'm going to be charting the progress of a person's life over time and I'm going to be looking at the different phases of life? Or is this just something that sort of comes to you naturally, organically? Yeah, it did, it did happen organically. But it, I mean, after girlhood, I, I kind of decided that this would be a trilogy. I kind of handed it also to the press saying, like promoting girlhood. It was like, this is the end of a trilogy. Um, also because I wanted it, I wanted to depart and I wanted to actually like, it was like, yeah, a way to make it happen. Um, um, but I didn't have no this scheme where I would go through different, the different steps uh, of, of childhood and teenagehood. But it's actually the case because Water Lilies was about really, beginning of adolescence, tomboy was about the end of childhood, and uh, girlhood was about the end of adolescence. Um, I think it has to do mostly with the fact that I, I got the opportunity, the privilege to make film at a very young age, because uh, when I wrote what Elisa was 26, basically it was obvious uh, that I would write about teenagehood because I wanted to write about something that I, that I knew. Do you uh, think it's useful to have that like 20 year remove from the experience to be writing about it in that way? Do you are you looking at things in that specific way? Did you think about this film in that way too? I think this film I mean, well, I'm 40 years old now and I was like I was really really wanted to have a new experience uh in crafting portraits with grown-ups character and wanting to tell about a love story that was fully lived whereas uh the desire the rise of desire um, with uh, teenage characters is mostly about discovering yourself and i really wanted to and and about a love that is not uh, completed um and i wanted to depart from that frustration and go with the full love dialogue and also work with professional actresses so it was a way also to put i mean um uh, to depart also from the comfort of, you know, uh, the, your craft. I think also it was a way, working uh, around coming-of-age story, was a way to figure out what kind of director I was because um, you're not enslaved to casting, you're not, you, you, you get to have also a more equal relationship with uh, your cast, for instance. Um 
uh, and yeah, not be set into this idea that okay, you make a first film and then and 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 and, and then you make a second one with more money. For instance, Tomboy was cheaper than than what Lily's, for instance. And those things, I think about them a lot. They're not happening by chance. I'm like trying to not compromise ever and and to build each film as a prototype uh, and to be free. So to make them not too expensive and also working with teenagers was also a way to find yeah, my own way of directing, understanding myself as a director. And with these three films, first film, I kind of, I was like, okay, I think now I'm ready for adulthood. Even entering girlhood, you felt that way? You felt like it would be almost on a more level playing field with your actors if they were not as experienced? Because by then, I feel like Tomboy and Water Lily is very well received, yeah. beloved by many people. Of course. So, you know, you have a you're, you're you're reputational in the world at that point, and even still, you felt like it would be easier for you at that stage to work with more inexperienced people. Well, I think it's. I wasn't thinking. Um, it was different for Girlhood because uh, the movie was more. I experimented. It wasn't about. Yeah, I was kind of. Uh, confident now with uh, with actresses and um, and not being anxious at all, um, but it means that this discomfort I could uh, I could rely on that, but to uh, to be more bold on other 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 levels of the films, like narratively um, and making making it bigger. Um, so, Gold's real film regarding the script, the construction. Um, so. Yeah, we'd, it was another form of prototype, uh, I must say. Um, and this time, yeah, I really wanted to, it was kind of a paradox, but uh, to focus on the fact that I wanted to make the most contemporary object, the most contemporary film. Uh, and the paradox was that it was set in the past, but that would set uh, the ambition and the bar. Like you can't you can't compromise with the fact that it has to be super contemporary. Did you... Do you anticipate this being the part of the first part of a new trilogy in any way? <laughs> no. Okay. Not that's, at all. That's yeah. just something you you jerry-rigged to, to explain the last three. Yeah, yeah. So why did you want to write a love story? Why was that important? Um, well, because I think love stories is are the films we, that have the most impact on us. Uh, and there's not that many, I must say. Um, I mean... Here, there's the romantic comedy as a genre. In France, we don't really even that even have that. I think we're doing it increasingly less in this country too. Yeah, too. You know. Yeah. And and it's weird because it's it's. I mean, we we all have a big appetite, and and as cinephiles, um, we. I mean, we all have this passion for films that are not even um, interesting. You know, in. in cinematically speaking right. but that we adore because uh, and like if you look at the greatest film in the history of cinema you know Gone with the Wind Titanic you know, it's love stories Pretty Woman um, so I really wanted to yeah to to confront myself to that to, to that genre and to, and to craft a film that would be really generous and and also love story I mean um, it's also a lesbian love story and that hasn't been done much, uh, and um, and I wanted to, yeah, to give that also, especially in a in a period piece like this. So I'm sure there was a lot of intentionality around the time that this film is set. I was hoping you could kind of explore and explain some of that, like kind of right at the 
height of the Age of Enlightenment and and what's happening in in France at that time. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can help us understand why you wanted to set a film in this period. Yeah, I mean, I wanted the 18th century for the Enlightenment, for which is a very, very important moment in France. And, it, and I mean, we keep convoking it today uh, regarding very political matters like the Enlightenment, like the universalism, for instance. France is strong, it really rebendicates universalism, you know, and as a, whereas communitarism, you know, and uh, and this, like it would be this ideal uh, and, and we we keep living uh, every day. It's it's convoked every day. Even though I mean, our president keeps talking about that. Um, so politically, it was <laughs> interesting to to set the movie at that time. But it was mostly um, also f um, for a matter of, of art history because at that particular moment, the second half of the 18th century, there was a very and I was ignorant about that. I must say, there was a very strong. Um, female-driven uh, art scene, uh, also with a critic scene. Uh, and uh, there were hundreds of, uh, of women painter in Europe. Um, and, um, and then there was, there was, there was backlash. Uh, and, you know, we keep uh, being told that women's rights, women's opportunities are keep growing. And it's not true. It's, it's a cycle. Uh, and as we are going through today, some kind of cultural shift around this question, we also experience strong backlash and resistance. So, um, I mean, I was amazed to discover the body of work of these women that were erased from art history. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And it's, it's missing. It's, it's missing to art history, but that can be corrected, you know. Uh, but it's, it has been missing from our lives. I mean, I felt looking at these images, like these images have been missing from my life. Like I, I would have, it would have been better if I had encountered the body of work of these women. Um, I would have felt less lonely uh, because, you know, that's what, the fact that we that we are missing women's perspective uh, in literature in in art in general it means that we are not of course we are miss, we are missing great pieces of art but also we are not uh, given the transmission of our intimacies because you know that's what literature is also you know sharing the experience of a character and so that that's a way to isolate women you know we are not being given our our, the, the history, the historicity of our intimacies, of our desires, of our, and that was the project also with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. You wanted to give back to these women their desire. It's not because you're oppressed that you don't have the desire. Right. It's not because you don't love we want that you get that you're not full of love for somebody. Um, and I also can't imagine a more intimate movie. It is a, truly a movie between two people, a secret, unspoken in many ways between two people the yeah, whole time. Yeah. This is very smart. I, I was reading that you write your films scene to scene. Yep. But I'm curious, especially for something like this, which is a, an, an invention in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. is it character first? Is it setting in time first? Is it story first? Like, how do you come to the decision to begin writing something? Well, it is images and scenes first. Uh, I have this, I, I take a long time buffering I take a long time <laughs> having this reverie, dreaming about uh, things, not trying to bring things together. For instance, for Portrait, I had like, since the beginning, I had the final scene that we're not going to talk about, but I had No that. spoilers here. I had the image of 
Adele and Elle being really set on fire, for instance, not knowing why would this happen, but I had this. I had, uh, what do you do? You jot it in a notebook? You open up your yeah, computer? What yeah, do you... I, I put up my computer, I read it, and I use only one file and put all the ideas and, and dream about them. Dream about them and, and never give up on the, on the desire. Because those things that come to you first, if you're not trying to put them in a storytelling, you know, if not trying to make them fit in, they stay. They stay as compass and they will be in the film. You, they will be. You have to. You have to put them in the film, um, and then I begin to think about the storytelling, uh, and have. But the unit is always the scenes. I'm always trying. I'm always thinking about the scenes and not the plot, for instance, uh, and trying to find solutions for the plots within the scenes. So basically, when I have a list of all the scenes. Um, I begin to write the script. But before that, it's not... It, sometimes it can also be a line of dialogue. For instance, I had uh, Don't Regret Remember, like a motto. And I, I, I didn't know it would be like part of the dialogue. It could be part of an idea. It could be of a global philosophy. Uh, I wrote that into my notes for a question later. <laughs> it's, it's a, so it's basically, it's a puzzle that you've never seen pieced together before. Exactly. And you have all of the pieces. Exactly. Uh, that sounds very difficult to, to make it fit together, though. That it is. is. Is it challenging to actually construct a coherent story from that? It is very challenging, but um, it is very exciting. It puts you in a dynamic where you're like hunting for a treasure, uh, in a way. You're like, you have, yeah, it's, it's, it's mapping the film. And... And it's actually fun. I mean, it's really challenging, but I, I hadn't been always doing like this. I, your it's, other films feel so naturalistic. I wondered if the, the, this is so, I mean, it's, I'm sure you've heard it's very painterly, the new film, yeah. and very purposefully, I'm sure. But the, the images are so stark and so defined. Yeah. I, but your other films don't feel quite that same way to me. The, yep. So this is, the, is this the first time you're doing it specifically in that way? Well, there's a reason for that, I think. Uh, it is that... My previous films, there were no shot, reverse shot. Very few. Very, very few. Will you explain to the listeners what that means? Well, it means like if we would film our conversation, for instance, there would be a shot on you and then there would be a shot on me and we would edit this. And it's basic cinema grammar. Every film has shot, reverse shot. You can't find a film without a shot, reverse shot. I mean, otherwise they'll be conceptual. Right. Uh, and um, I'm all about long takes uh, and trying to find choreography of the body in a frame. So um, using the dolly a lot. And and when I had this idea about the relationship between a painter and a model, I thought, okay, but this is going to be a film about shot, reverse shot. I'm going to have to do this. And I don't have a strong appetite for this. So now, but it's like, you know, you're like a student also. When you write, you're like a student with no teacher. <laughs> you're like a student studying your own film in a way. And so then when I decided, I realized that it would be, it would have to be basically about shot reverse shot because the model is in front of the painter. Then you begin um, to think about, to reflect on that in different ways. Like how can you make shot reverse shot fun? How... Um, how can you even build the storytelling around uh, uh, this idea that uh, one character will go 
in her own gaze because like if you're on, in your shot and you go in the shot of the other person then it's a tension it's a dramatic tension so when I you think in, that, when you introduce the mirror into the frame too that's like that is the third level of understanding the yeah. seeing yourself in someone else quite literally is the most well I don't want to digress too much but that that blows my mind when you put it in that context and that's being playful yeah. and that's harvesting an idea ideas and um so that's why I think this film is also quite different because it's not working on the same, it's not thinking about the same grammar of cinema. Mm -hmm. So you were thinking about ex exploding some of the formal dynamics that you had settled on from your last three films too here? Was that a very purposeful choice that you were making as you were designing the movie? No, it was it was uh, a total uh, a consequence of the storyline, I must say. So it wasn't about, okay, how am I re going to renew myself? It was about, okay, I have this uh, the relationship is based on 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 model and the painter. So, well, how am I going to shoot this? And so, oh, okay. So I have to reflect on shot, reverse shot. So it wasn't about I'm gonna make it different. It 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 just organically happens, and you have to be honest. I mean, you just have to be honest. Um, and I think you, especially at the stage of screenwriting, the more honest you are with what's going to happen, like with the storyboarding, the future storyboarding of the film, the most honest you are about that, then the most playful you will be with this. You know, you, you won't become the victim of what you've been writing because sometimes it happens. You can become the victim of what you've been writing because you're like, okay, painter and a model, if I didn't think shot, reverse shot, if I didn't went through with this idea through the process of the screenplay, I could have, you know, I would have had less desire for that situation because it's also very repetitive. And I mean, it's the movie is, is about about reach is a lot about rituals because you know she's gonna pose a lot of times. It is set mostly in one room, which can be, you can be yeah, it, it can put a lot of pressure. Like, how am I gonna have desire for that room every day? Like, I had uh, uh, a grip man grip is that the word? Grip, yeah, yes. grip, yeah, there was like an extra on the set and. It, he hadn't read the script and, and he stayed with us for the whole shooting actually but like on the fourth day we were shooting and the workshop of the painter was like when are we changing rooms we're like never and he was like that's impossible <laughs> well yes it is <laughs> so one of the ways that you I guess build anticipation for that shot or verse shot is this incredible very patient 20 minutes before we meet Adele's character mm -hmm. or at least see her face and you just see the back of her head and that first encounter and that trailing shot, which is just an amazing. I love that sequence. Can you maybe like explain what your thinking was behind almost making us wait to get to see her and mm -hmm. to wait for Naomi's character to get to see her and what all that meant? Yeah, it's um, the character. Eloise's character doesn't want to be painted. She and we we uh, and the beginning of the film is about that tension, but that tension, that cinematic tension of having the desire to see somebody's face, which is could be the definition of cinema or introducing a character. Like how do you create the appetite for a face? And especially a face that you have already seen. Because that's the paradox, because Adele and Elle's face is identified, uh, especially in France. People know her. She's on the poster. She's on the poster. So why would you... I mean, like, spoiler alert, you know, we know her face. Like, how? But how do you build <laughs> tension around that? Mm -hmm. Um which is an amazing question uh, to ask yourself. Uh, um, and it's a very Hitchcockian uh, move also. Um, 
uh, I'm not a bit, uh, I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a cinephile director that doesn't, uh, I mean, I watch a lot of films and I have, I have the cinephile culture, but I'm not a cinephile director in a way that I'm not trying to dialogue with past filmmakers doing quotes or whatever. It's, in this film, there's a quote, actually, there's a, a quote from Bergman, Persona, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a frame that is definitely a wink or a, uh, an homage. <laughs> they, they, this film shares a lot with Persona. Two women Two trapped, women trapped in island. a home in an island. Yeah. You know, there's there's something there that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I'm not into this reference thing. But that moment felt, yeah, I was like, yeah, it's 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 gonna be each cocaine. You know? Yes. Yeah. There's like maybe a little Rebecca, a little suspicion, a little yeah. bit of that in there. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, so many of the sequences of the film, like I said, feel so designed. Are you storyboarding every single moment of the movie? So I'm not storyboarding. Um, in the process of writing, I'm always trying to to be accurate about where scenes, about the cuts, for instance. I'm trying to edit the film within the script. The film has been, and the editing process quite quite confirmed it. I mean, uh, the film has been hasn't been. You know, the scenes are in the in, in the order where they were written, and the cuts are basically the one that were written. Um, Did you shoot it in sequence as well? No, okay. not at all. Okay. And I'm, I don't consider the script done unless I can definitely uh, see how each scene is going to be uh, storyboard. Um, I don't know the word. In France, we say découpage, but I don't know if you have that word. Like, découpage means cut. Well, well anyway. Um, uh, but... Uh, each day before should I, I I rethink it each day before shooting and I come on the set and 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 tell about what we're gonna do. So it's a double process uh, of thinking about it before and then we questioning it every day, uh, which is something that uh, um, because you're building the language of the film and I mean at the end of the shooting you're practically. Uh, more in the position to invent than at the beginning, which is a paradox also, I think, because you have, yeah, you're building that this language and you you begin to speak it more and more. You you learn the own language of the film. And that's also something I always think about when I think about the audience. I think like, I think the pleasure of the the audience should be that they get to speak the language of the film and get it and be more and more connected to the language that they speak, like it would be a new language, and then they will speak it. Like, for instance, page 28, it's definitely an idea like that. Uh, it's like you own that language. A number can break your heart, but that number, and maybe that number will break your heart in life, you know, uh, hopefully. It may now if people see the film, <laughs> yes. And that's, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about language. Um, so in the process of shooting the film, like in the last days of shooting, you, can, you, you know that language so well that you can play with it even more, even more. That's the beauty of, of doing that job, I think. Do you have a meticulous level of specificity in the script? Like the dress must be green, for example. Like is all of that very clearly demarcated? Uh, yeah. I mean, the green dress, for instance, yes, that's a good example. But the way Marianne was dressed, for instance, there was no color involved. So it's uh, there are some things that I'm very 
that I would won't compromise with. And there are things that are, that are open so that, you know, because the cinema is very collaborative. So, and I enjoy that very much. So, um, but for instance, for Marianne's dress, I didn't know the color, didn't know the fabric, didn't know what would be the style, but I knew that, she, that I wanted her to have pockets, for instance. So that was the costume designer came up with the, the the fabric, this idea of this fabric, and also the color that wasn't really part of my uh, world because I'm not a very burgundy red person. You know, in my film, very few, very few warm color in a way. Um, but I I went for it. I was like, okay, this is new, and uh, but didn't compromise on the presence of pockets, for instance. <laughs> So it it looks like you sh- shot this with natural light. Um, is that had you? Is that all? Are all your films shot in natural light? Um, no, and it's not shot in natural light. Oh. I mean, it is partly all the exteriors. Obviously, are shot in yeah. natural light, and we begin with this. So it was an eight day shooting in Brittany. Uh, we were surprised by uh, an amazing sun. Which is not uh, the case in Brittany. I mean, a little cloudy there. Yeah, usually it's gray, and I want that that gray Gothic atmosphere. Um, and well, then I was totally. I mean, I have no control over <laughs> meteorology, but we actually we welcomed this as a good news. But then we had to take back that light from Brittany. Uh, to the castle where we're shooting in the Parisian periphery. It's a very ancient castle that wasn't untouched. Uh, for instance, the, the the color of the wall was original. We didn't paint anything. We didn't touch anything. Uh, but we couldn't hang any lights on on inside the room, for instance. So it's all lit from the outside. And we had this big, it was really like we put a lot of money into this. Uh, there was this very big structure with a lot of lights. And it would be really, really accurate. Uh, we wouldn't use uh, actually uh, the natural lighting. Uh, it's so funny because I feel like so many of, especially things framed in front of the window. Yeah. I was like, "Wow, she really this is like Barry Lyndon or something." You know, yeah, the way that it's, it's captured. It really feels that way. There's like twenty uh, spotlights over there doing, doing the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the night scenes, of course, uh, with the candle. Uh, agenda, which is really, you could look at every period film really just looking at the candles and and, and that would tell a lot about uh, the directing choice. Um, that was something that took a lot of time and a lot of invention also, because as we couldn't put any spotlight in there regarding the candle, like, do you put the source in the frame or not? And, um, and you have to invent a whole kind of, a whole bunch of lights with rope lights mostly. And the set would be like for just one candle, the set would be full of rope lights, very, very strange, uh, shape. And all the actresses were always, uh, how do you call that? They were always, uh, uh followed by a, a guy with the light, you know, as they would be followed by uh, the microphone for the sound. Wow. Um, so when it's long takes of uh, Marianne crossing the hall, I mean, taking the stairs and, and riding through the castle, she's basically always followed by a whole bunch of lights um, because obviously the candle didn't lit anything. But you could, I mean, you could also make that decision or it's all candle lit and like, as I understand it, that's very hard to do. It is. That's sort of why I ask. Yeah, but yeah. also that choreography that you must have been doing just to use that lighting rig must have been really difficult to pull off. It was. But it, it really most, works. The most difficult part for me was the waiting because if you decide 
you know, when people are saying, yeah, how do you make it beautiful? Well, you have to give time. You have to give time to the DP and the camera crew. So basically, it was a lot, a lot. Of, and it's a kind of a, I mean, it's not that only, I'm, I'm a smoker, so I can wait. But <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the fact that I have to wait and I'm bored. It's the fact that, well, it's time you won't, you have, you will have less time with the actresses. So, you know, it's, it's a strong decision. Um, but I'm glad we took it. I, I love the way that you've captured the act of painting in the movie. Yeah. It's so tactile. How did you, who is the, who, who is the painter in the film? I assume it's not Naomi. And, no. Uh, okay. Um, so who is that? What? How did that happen? Um, yeah, I really wanted to show a painter at work. That's also why we we chose to shoot digital with a very, very high res- resolution, which was also a decision that had consequences because regarding focus, it was very, we had a very narrow window. The actress, it would really constrain them, their whole body, the way they, they would move. And focus, I was like lost a lot of, Sweat, sweated a lot, I think. Some of your other... Uh, Water Lilies is on film, right? I don't know if your yeah. other films are also on film. No. Water Lilies the... was 35 millimeters. Tomboy was uh, shot with a uh, uh, 7D. Canon 7D mm. was one of the first films shot with this. Partially why it's cheaper, I'm sure, than yeah. Water Lilies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and this one, yeah. Uh, digital. And... and um, what was I talking to you about that? Oh, the painting. Yes. It was mostly about that because we wanted to have... Like the, to see the moist of the painting, the colors, the um, and so the painter. Uh, I was looking for somebody who was able to to make to make it look 18th century, but didn't want to go with a copist or a specialist. Wanted to work also because it was the film with um, a contemporary painter who would be 30, who would be the age of the character. Um, so I encountered Hélène Delmer's work, with the, she's the painter of the film, um, on Instagram, actually. Uh, I totally fell in love with her work, wrote to her. She, was, she, has been, she had been studying old painting in um, Florence, in Italy, with a, a, a maestro uh, specialist of the 19th century. That's why our Marianne is a little bit avant-garde. Um, but it was mostly important to me I knew that it, was, it wasn't going to be like 18th century perfect, but I kind of didn't care, you know. Uh, let's be modest and let's try to, you know, but the painting should belong to the film. Um, and so we worked with, uh, with Ellen, who had no interest or knowledge about cinema. Um, we were both ignorant of, of how hard it was going to be. You know, when you look at film with painters, it's like, it's pretty rare that you get to invent a painter. Usually it's like the biopic of, I don't know, Turner or Van Gogh or, or you, we know their body of work and it's like about, you know, the pleasure of seeing it happening. Um, and I understand why it's hard to invent a painter. It's super hard because you have to create everything and and, and make it true. Um, yeah, I was and, wondering if you had studied painting at any period of your life just to have access to that, what what goes into that. I mean, I'm as I'm watching it uh, as a know-nothing I'm kind of blown away by the idea of someone just inventing a style, a painting style yeah. on camera. Yeah, it was crazy. It was like the, the hardest job. It was like really the thing, like luckily I was ignorant, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Um, and it was painful also for her because like for each uh, f- each painting, it's a 80-hour job. Wow. And at cinema, so she had to paint several because there were different steps and we, were do- we weren't doing this chronologically. 
Um, that's amazing. That's amazing. She she nearly died, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> and um, and she had to create several paintings. The portrait of Lady on Fire that we see in the beginning, and 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 there are several paintings. Well, we don't want to spoil that, but um, that was super hard. But the beauty of it is that she would came on she would come on the set, and she would paint before. I mean, we would do. Uh, the canvas before we would do a Noemi Merlant painting, but Noemi would look at her uh, so she would see what the painter was doing and especially, okay, the gestures, but mostly also the choreography, the steps, how you take a look back, how you come back and the gaze of the painter, which is very, very specific. Um, So there was a strong collaboration between them that was beautiful to watch also. How has it been to have your film kind of explode in a way. I mean, I, this is certainly, it feels like the noisiest reception you've gotten in the States. Obviously, you, you won an award at Cannes and it was hugely celebrated. And, yeah. you know, it's it's a bigger, it feels like a bigger amount of exposure to someone like me. Yeah. Um, what has it been like to kind of enter that realm as a filmmaker? It's it's full of contrast, I must say. It's not one thing. It's, uh, I mean, the most, the thing I enjoy the most is feeling totally depossessed of the film. Uh, the fact that uh, what do you mean by that? Well, the fact that there's kind of a cult around it. Yeah. Maybe it's it's maybe it's not a lot of people, but it's definitely super strong. I talked to I talked to Todd Haynes a few months ago, and I have talked to him a few times. And the relationship that people have to Carol yeah. reminds me a lot of the relationship to yeah. this movie, and not just because of the love story at the yeah. center of it, but because of the amount of the like affection the sort of intense affection that people have for it who've seen it yeah is really quite unusual it is in, and in it's, cinema now and it is because it is a lesbian love story because carol is also a lesbian love story it's because it is it has been missing from the screen and so people get passionate about it that's why we should make this film very we, i mean that's why we should, we we must be very careful because the passion there will be passion so we must make the most beautiful intelligent film you know, and that moves me the most because that reminds me of my own relationship with cinema when I was uh, a teenager or what, even. Uh, what was the film that you had a, a built a cult to? Huh. I built a cult to Milan Drive. Milan Drive, for yeah. instance, that is also a lesbian love story. True. Uh, that's why also it was a cult for me because I wanted to see those images. Uh, and the and the fact that I've been liking lousy direct to DVD lesbian love story. I've been loving them <laughs> because you know you, you. I mean, I had to wait till I was sixteen to see two women kiss on screen, but I'd never seen it in life. Other imagine, imagine how lonely, how ignorant of not ignorant of how it goes, but how ignorant of how you feel about this. You are. Um, and Malone Drive was also, was kind of a uh, yeah I've totally occulted around that film, but mostly also because he actually uh, it's he, he crafted uh, a, a narrative about love. Everybody seems to think the, the movie is super mysterious. It's really simple. Anyway, it's just like he's telling this half. The first half of the film is a dream about the sec about the second half, the realities. It's really easy, uh, but what does it tell us about love? It tells us. Milano Drive says that "I love you" is always something that you say uh, in the past. 
Like, that's it. Because that's the most striking thing in Mulholland Drive. Those two women, they don't know each other. Suddenly they're in bed and one of them said to the other, I think I'm in love with you. And this is striking because it's mysterious, but it's even more striking when at the end of the film, because it's not mysterious at all. It says that I love you is not something always say in the future. And I thought a lot about Mulholland Drive while writing portrait because I, I said I thought I have to find a narrative that will also say something about love it's not about not just you know crafting a love story what's going to be the politics of love the philosophy of love that I want to hand to people and it's the opposite is that I love you is something you will always say in the future is a, is a, is, a, is a sentence that always has a future um I can't interrogate that anymore because I don't want to spoil the movie for people. um <laughs> You mentioned it's, you sort of feel dispossessed from the movie. What are, are there downsides to a movie like this getting such extraordinary exposure? Well, the downside is that when when it's when it's despised, you take it very badly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, have you have you had some complicated? I feel like most of the reaction has been so positive. Yeah, here it's amazing. But I mean, I've been the movie's been released. I've done fifteen countries, fifteen release of the film, and um, from one culture to another, I must say. The French culture is quite resisting the film. Yeah, it didn't really do well in the French box. I mean, it did okay, but um, uh, it's it's an international hit, you know. Um, but domestically, was uh, didn't felt quite understood. I must say. What what accounts for that? Do you think? It's a uh, totally French culture. I think, um, like for instance, the French critics thought the film was cold and was lacking flesh. That is the opposite of how Americans have received the movie. Exactly. So, you know, I'm not here to comment on that. I mean, yeah. it's it's what they feel. It's their culture. It's like, uh, but uh, it's, it's yeah, it's troubling because I was I was really trying to make this film that I found hot, you know, and mm-hmm. like the people tell you it's cold. It's like, okay, you just, I mean, you just, it's still kind of contrast sometimes. They, they can be not hard to live come on this is like it's crazy beautiful life that, that, I, that I have but you know can, they, they asking it's asking asking myself questions about yeah the difference so beyond the obvious increased level of exposure in this country and elsewhere um, you mentioned that this feels like a it is a leveling up in some ways do you intend to make even bigger films than this do you have a, a sense of what kind of films you want to make in the future while I'm thinking about it, yeah, um, my next dream, so it might not be my next film, <laughs> uh, but my next dream is to make a very, very long film, like very long. Like like television? Well. Or like an epic film? Not an epic film, not television, I don't know. But I mean, I, no, I'm not saying I want to make a six, uh, six uh, mini series, something like. That. Maybe I will. You know, I would I would have always wanted to to write a very long form. That and I love uh, TV series. I mean, I love TV series, of course. But uh, I mean, it's been an inspiration for girl, girlhood. For instance, was built like a f- uh, five five episodes of twenty six minutes. Right. So it was kind of influenced by uh, the rhythm of television. But um, I'm thinking. I'm trying to think out of the box and think like, I just can tell you that I want it to be super long, but maybe it will be eight hours of uh, streaming. Maybe it will be, but without episodes. Maybe it will be, I don't know. I'm, but I'm, 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 I'm buffering. It's interesting. You're buffering. <laughs> yeah. I, each of your films, I think, feel like each is longer than the last too. Yeah. As I feel like, do you feel more confident 
writing at length as well when you're doing this? Yeah, but the weird thing is that the scripts are always really short. For instance, uh, Portrait is only 68 sequences, 68 scenes, which I know can seem like people don't really know how many scenes there are in a film, but like a classic script would be 90 pages and 110 scenes, something like that. Um, Portrait was like 80 pages and... uh, so sometimes I don't have really the sense of, because, you know, usually a page is a minute. So you're like, okay, 90 page, an hour and a half. You but like those long shots. I like those long shots too. And I like to find the rhythm also. You get a sense of the rhythm live when you are on the set. And at some point you're like, okay, a continuity person is looking at you saying, your movie is going to last two hours. I'm like, okay, why not? But it's <laughs> not that I have that in, in mind, you know. Celine, we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. Have you seen anything special lately? I haven't seen much because mostly I've been seeing the last two minutes of my film. <laughs> That's like not for <laughs> All your Q&A work. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to say something that is uh, maybe that's, that might seem conventional, uh, especially these days around her award season. But I must say that Phoebe Waller-Bridge Fleabag has given me uh, a lot of joy, loves, emotion, and I really, I I think she's a great author, and I am, I am, I'm just trying to meet her in the city. If you hear this, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, like, let's hang out. <laughs> what is it that, about that show that you responded to? Uh, I think it's I I'm, I mean I feel connected to the project. I mean I, I even I even feel like we have uh, there's this kind of connection uh, regarding the philosophy of the gaze and 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 the representation and um i just and i think she's a, yeah it's just brilliantly directed and 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 good comedy i mean comedy when it is that good as a, i mean as everything i want from fiction and i don't know i'm, I'm <laughs> uh, you're gazing into the middle distance looking for the right word yeah I, I just think it's brilliant, and um, and I, I can't wait for what she what she does next. I, must say. I feel the same about you. I, I think Portrait is an absolute masterpiece. So thanks for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you to Celine Siama, and of course, thank you to Amanda Dobbins. Please stick around. For this podcast next week, we will be back to explore the films of Dumpuary, and we'll have more conversations with great filmmakers, hopefully talking about great films. We'll see you then.